Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys this way, even though we can't be with you in person. Uh, We hope to be able to do that here soon as we start moving forward. Uh, We will let you know we are going to start opening up to meet outdoors, and we will give you that date as soon as we work some of those things out. Again, we still want to be cautious, even though the vaccine is uh, being taken, and many of you may have even already received it. From my understanding, even if you have received the vaccine, you will not suffer the uh, harsh uh, consequences of COVID-19, but you are still able to uh, give the virus to other people which is not a good thing. So we want to be careful of those things and not have a false sense of security. We want to be wise in how we do these things. Um, There's a lot in my mind about that and how we want to move forward, but we definitely want to be considerate of those who are at risk, especially elderly, those with diabetes or other uh, conditions that can be uh, more hazardous. So Saying all those things, we are as we do move forward, we want you to be cautious in these things and be careful. I know I got a text from my brother this morning saying that his lungs are cleared up. Uh, he had pneumonia, as you may recall, and so he's thankful for all the prayers, and he actually went back to church this morning, which I was like, oh, okay, you know, I have my feelings about that, but um, anyway... That's not the point. The point is we do hope to start meeting in some form here in the near future, and we will let you know about that. In the meantime, we are here Sunday mornings live on YouTube. We are also here live Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for Take Two. You're invited to join us live at these times, or you can still hear the podcast or tune in on YouTube later and watch it and we hope you will do so. We also are still uh, here because of you and your giving, and there's the different ways to give. Again, you can mail the checks here to our address, and all that information is there on the screen. Uh, You can give to Zelle, uh, Venmo, or go to thegenesisstory.com, and you can find the giving tab and go there as well. Um, So those are all things that are taking place. We all are still waiting for our app to be approved. Uh, Still waiting. All we've done is put it out there. So when that happens, that'll be another means of us being able to communicate 
uh, more quickly to you all as that app becomes available. And we'll let you know about that as it goes on. Um, Thank you, Randy, for last week and your talk and for you and Brianna doing take two uh, Wednesday. Appreciated that, the timely word, good news in desperate times. Um, I'm going to begin a series kind of piggybacking what I did on the grace and truth, but I'm not going to start it today. I'm still kind of marinating some things in my head with that. And today I want to talk about why Christian. What makes Christianity different? And this was sparked by some things that have been going on in my life, definitely a podcast I heard from Peter Enns. Um, But it's something that is important to me, especially as I have friends and family who don't consider themselves, quote, Christian, but maybe tune in, listen to us, or um, have questions about why this is something that I'm a part of or maybe that you're a part of. And one of the things that I think makes Christianity different from other religions, and even saying that, I, I realize that all religions are different from one another in some way, right? So it's not like, well, this is different. Well, we're all different. This isn't saying that all other religions are the same. And and I'm not even going to talk this morning about, well, this religion is right and this one is wrong, or this one's better, this one is worse. Not comparing these things. This isn't going to be a Yelp review of Christianity. Um, I think it's important to recognize differences. I, I think that it's not doing justice to any faith system by saying that they're all alike. And I did tackle this in some degree years back when we did a series called The Truth Between Us, and I talked about a lot of different faiths, and I really wanted to focus not just on differences, but how there are things that you find connect us as well. Um, But my focus is a little bit different here. My focus is what is why I find Christianity something that has captured my attention and my devotion. What it is about this faith that intrigues me, that inspires me. And I hope it'll do the same for you. And maybe it'll, it'll put words to some of the, the thoughts or emotions that you have. Uh, people try to claim the differences in so many ways, right, uh, about different faiths. And they'll say, well, you know, Christianity has miracles. Well, most religions have miracles as a part of their belief system, the stories and things that are, are there. Or we might say, well, it's the resurrection. You know, the resurrection is what's unique about Christianity. But nope. Dying and rising is a theme in many ancient myths. Or some will say it's the virgin birth. Wrong again. Divine birth is a common theme describing the birth of great leaders, including Caesar, they said. Being a savior. And once again, 
even Caesar was spoken about as being a gift from God to be a savior, meaning safety from the enemies to the people, which was also called the good news, right? So none of those things are the unique things that I want to really talk about. What I want to lean into is this paradox of shame. And I love that word paradox. And shout out to Craig and Paradox Church in Redlands, um, who's named that. He's a brilliant guy. Um, But the paradox of shame is something that I find intriguing, as well as the reversal of sacrifice. Now, the New Testament writers, their faith was shaped by the risen Christ. It was resurrection that fueled the beginning of Christianity. But I'm not going to try and prove that or focus on that part. I want to start with the recognition that whether you believe that or not, That is what they believed and thought to be true. And that's what led them to a problem that I find illuminating. And the problem was the crucifixion. You see, they believed in in a risen Jesus, but they had to deal with the problem of crucifixion. And it was a problem. Now, for us, it might seem like, oh, that's not a problem. But again, we are so far removed from that time where I think we lose a lot of the emotion that was there and the, the feeling of what that meant. Crucifixion is not the event that led the movement. Instead, it's what the early followers of Jesus had to make sense of because at that time it made no sense. Why was Jesus crucified? That's a different question than why did Jesus die, right? We might have heard that question, oh, Jesus died for our sins, and we're going to touch on that later. But why crucifixion? Why not beheaded? Why not shot with arrows? Why not? killed in some other way, why crucifixion? Crucifixion was for those who at that time were a threat to the state, right? It it is for people who were problematic. Now, these are the kinds of things that, again, we don't, I I think, fully recognize. We we don't have the emotion there. It's not a hero's death by any stretch of the imagination. And when we say the word Christ, it's the word Messiah, which is also the word anointed one, which really is a word for king in the, the Jewish idea. A king is anointed. It's a person who has royalty, a person who has this position of honor. Well, crucifixion is the opposite. Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they sure did perfect it. They made it shamefully humiliating. And unlike the pictures or paintings or movies that we see of crucifixion, where the cross is up high and elevated, actually crucifixion took place more at eye level with people. And they were naked and they were able to see people at that level suffering intently. 
And it was meant to be that because it was meant to be an example and a shaming of these people. You know, when people have cancer and are dying of cancer towards the end of their lives, they usually do not want people to come and see them. And a lot of it has to do with because of the way they look. They, they no longer resemble who they want to be remembered as. And, and so they feel ashamed because maybe they've lost their hair. They, they have, you know, just lost so much weight and it, it takes such a toll on their body that it's not uncommon for them not even to want to see people that they love because of how they feel about themselves because it's that level of shame. You know, some of us doesn't want to get on a Zoom call if we don't have our hair done, right? I mean, if we wake up in the morning. And so here's the thing. If you're starting a religion, especially in the Jewish tradition, where God is to be honored and in no means shamed. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy goes through great lengths to say how not to shame God and talks about blessings and cursings. If you are starting a religion, this isn't your best move. This isn't the best thing to do to get momentum behind you is to start with something that is so humiliating, so shameful, and so visually off-putting as it would have been to the people who seen this taking place at that time. If you are around people who are, say, dying of cancer in a continual state, you, you know the condition and the frailty and how different it is to see someone who you knew in the vitality of life in this end condition. You, you know that contrast. And to say that this is where I'm going to start from is really uh, unusual. Not only that, because it is someone who is an enemy of the state, it's even more offensive and obscure. Martin Hingle, who is a German scholar, he specialized in Christian origins, and he wrote a couple of books in the 70s. One was called The Son of God, and the other is called Crucifixion. In a chapter of the first book, The Son of God, entitled The Problem, Martin Hingle writes this. At the feast of the Passover in the year 30 in Jerusalem, a Galilean Jew was nailed to a cross for claiming to be the Messiah, again, the king, the anointed one. About 20 years later, the former Pharisee, Paul, quotes a hymn about this crucified man in a letter, a letter that we know as the letter to the Philippians. And so in Philippians, Martin quotes this verse, chapter and verse, Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight. He says, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word servant is slave. Again, 
we use these words and we try to make them palatable, but there is nothing palatable about what is being said here. It is not meant to be palatable. Taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it wasn't that he just became obedient to death, it was death on a cross. Hingle goes on and he says, the discrepancy between the shameful death of a Jewish state criminal and the confession that depicts this executed man as a pre-existent divine figure who becomes man and humbles himself to a slave's death is as far as I can see without analogy in the ancient world. This is different. This is striking difference. So much that Hingle says there's not an analogy in the ancient world to this. And this is pretty much unheard of. He's not talking so much about who Jesus is. He's talking about the Christian religion that has on one hand this preexistent divine figure and at the same time meeting a humiliating and shameful end that's reserved for enemies of the state. And bringing those things together, there's nothing like that in the ancient world. In fact, I would submit that all modern-day stories, movies, and books with this typology are born here. And the paradox was already well-known and being talked about. That's why it becomes such a focus and such a theme in a lot of Paul's writings. In Hingle's other book, Crucifixion, he writes, The Folly of the Crucified Son of God. It is the crucifixion that distinguishes the new message from the mythology of all other peoples, specifically the Greco-Roman religions. It would have been offensive to a Roman that one who was honored as a god had been nailed to the cross by the Roman authorities as a state criminal. And again, this is not what you put forward when you're wanting to start a religion that appeals to someone. This is not how you make a good representation of what you want people to follow, is a humiliated criminal. It makes no sense. Hingle goes on, he says, the heart of the Christian message that Paul described as the word of the cross, which is in 1 Corinthians 18, that we encounter is offensive, not only to Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos, to the religion and ancient times, and in particular, to the ideas of God held by educated people. So this is where we are looking back and saying, okay, we have this faith. It has sprung forth in this idea and this belief that Jesus has risen from the dead, but we have to deal with how his death took place. And it is something that is shameful. It is something that is humiliating. It is something that is in opposition to that of royalty, that of anointing, that of everything that people would want to aspire to. This is in the exact opposite of that. 
And now how do we deal with that? And we see this in Paul's writing and in Hebrews and other places in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, starting at verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, we might look at this and and think, oh, those Jews and those Greeks, they, they thought this way. They were ignorant or shallow in their thinking, but no one in their right mind at that time would have put forward a crucified Messiah a crucified king, a crucified savior, it makes no sense to to peddle a crucified king as your savior. That was terrible. But that's exactly what the New Testament writers had to face. That their leader was essentially strung up and lynched. And that's not a terminology I made up. That's something that is presented in other writings as well. Let's take this further. Not only does the Christian faith feature a crucified founder, but somehow God, the creator, is in it all as this happens. In other words... God is willingly associated with such an unknowable act as this crucifixion. And I think if I were there at the time and someone told me of a crucified Savior, I would have walked away. It's like, I'm not buying that. Especially in an honor-shame society. Shame is an interesting thing. And when you think about this, when someone is shamed, it's usually shamed for a behavior that they did. Like if I get a ticket, right, the officer isn't ashamed of what he did. The judge, if I have to go before the judge, it doesn't affect the judge in any way. It affects me for the crime I did. But let's take it out of kind of that legal sense. Let's put it into a parental child example where you've got a toddler at a restaurant who's throwing a tantrum or in the grocery store or worse yet at a wedding or a funeral. And the parent feels ashamed that their child behaved so badly. I I have no control of my child, right? Or even if later on, if it's your teenager, right, who pays nothing to live in your house and eat all your food and then critiques you and disrespects you in front of other people, right? You feel ashamed. There's a sense of shame that this is your child and you feel this way. Jesus being crucified would have seemed shameful to their thoughts about God. 
You see what I'm saying? It's like, your son did this? It's akin to a pastor at a evangelical church whose son gets arrested for a DUI. And he feels ashamed because that shouldn't happen to your son. Crucifixion to the son of God would have seemed like a shame to God. And this, as we read, was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. They couldn't get past this. This made no sense. And this is what Paul had to wrestle with and try to reason out, and which is trying to explain that God's man was killed as a criminal by this Roman government as an object of humiliation, shame, and scorn. And this is where you have to connect the dots to the one who you see as victorious and living. That's why Paul wrote later on in 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. But God chose that what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. This is all speaking of the cross, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Right? He's talking about foolishness. He's talking about weakness. He's talking about shame, things that are despised, all these things are the image of the cross to the people at that time. And he is saying that God is using these things to bring about change. He would say also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in who? Christ, literally, in the cross. He triumphed over them in this place of shame. The cross now makes a, a public spectacle, not of those who believe, but of the rulers and authorities. And the question is how? How does this symbol of that which is so low, that is so despised, that it, it seems so weak. I mean, you, you aren't any weaker. You aren't any more powerless than a person who is sentenced to death on a cross. It is the authority of that government that has controlled your actions, has thwarted what you were doing, and has put it to open display as being void on the cross, and this is now the strength of God. This is now the wisdom of God. How? What's going on that caused this example to resonate and to take root in so many's hearts. And again, this is something that I have resonated with too. In Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse 2, the writer says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now we see this paradox coming in. The joy set before him despised the shame and now is elevated to this position. And in the center of it is this symbol, this cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's speaking again of the cross. Now, I, I used to think that I'm not ashamed of the gospel means I got to go tell people about Jesus, otherwise I'm ashamed. But it's not speaking of that, right? Because I was afraid to tell people about the gospel. But this isn't talking about, oh, if I'm willing to tell people about Jesus or not. This is speaking about the shame that is inerrant in the cross itself. And Paul is now saying it is salvation for everyone, to the Jew and the Greek. Shame was a real thing that couldn't be ignored when it came to the cross. Right? Paul then does this jujitsu move where he takes the momentum of this again and turns this on its head. Not only is he not ashamed of the gospel, but this gospel, which begins with crucifixion, is the power of God. Notice here that resurrection isn't what is referred to as the power, although it is in other places, but the shame of crucifixion is the power of God. See, before Paul talks about Christ humbling himself in Philippians 2, like we talked about later, he talks about this a little bit more. In Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3, he gives us this identification. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is right before he goes on and says what Christ did on the cross. Taking on himself the form of a slave, having no reputation. You see, if Christ, who put his divinity aside and became a man, specifically a man who would suffer the pain and humiliation of crucifixion, the, if he would do this, the least we could do is live a life that echoes in some way the shocking humiliation of Jesus. But it's more than just a motto of how the followers of Christ are to behave. It's Christ's passion for the joy set before him. How do you have passion for something that is looked on as shameful? And there's a, a deep mystical connection between, uh, 
Christ and his followers. And, and we see it over and over again taking place in, in Scripture. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, right? There, there's an identification with Jesus and specifically crucifixion, crucifying and, and then living. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, that I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection. We're like, yeah, and may share his suffering, being like him in his death. Knowing Christ, it's not a cerebral academic kind of thing. Knowing Christ is an intimacy of life. It's like brothers in arms, right, who have served in the military together and have gone through hell together and are bound together through the difficulties that they have gone through. My daughter who, as many of you know, is a nurse in the ER. One of her colleagues was working and got a call from her husband, a young man, saying he's not feeling well. And he was going off somewhere, I think, to go on a trip, something. I, I, I believe, if the story, if I remember well, they were going to be married soon and... He was going off to like a bachelor party or something like that. And he said he wasn't feeling well. She said, well, stop by the ER and we'll take a look at you. And he came by and as they did an exam on him, they found out that he had something going on. A, a, I forget the medical term for it that he had. He had a aneurotic aneurysm in his heart. And basically there was going to be a, a, an explosion in the vein in his heart. And they found it just in time to know that they could do nothing about it. And so this nurse, and I believe her soon-to-be husband or just recent husband, finds out that her husband is there, has this aneurysm that's about to explode and he is about to die and they really can do nothing about it. And within an hour from the time that he got there and they rushed him in there, he died while she was there at the hospital. And you can imagine the... the unbelief that's taking place in, in this situation as this happens to this poor young woman. And after all this take place and her husband died at the memorial service, gotta hang it together here. The memorial service for her husband, she is there and her and her husband's family who were Christian and had difficulties with her because she, quote, wasn't Christian. As they are there at the memorial, the family brought flowers and they put all these things there and they were putting this memorial and they were saying things about her husband, which she felt wasn't the person she knew. 
during the memorial service, the people from ER came. And they came in their scrubs. In solidarity to her. And it brought tears to her eyes because she says, these are my people. These are the people who were with me, who are with me at my side at a time like this. You see, there's something strangely mystical about a crucified savior that wants to bring solidarity in the most difficult, painful time of our life, the the time where our souls ache, the time that we hurt the most, that not only says, I understand you, but puts on the scrubs and is there with you in the suffering. You, You see, the problem I have with myself is my ego. That, that wants to be elevated, that wants to put itself up. And then I am struck by the image of a hero, of a Messiah, of a king, of an anointed one who doesn't want to be lifted up, but wants to take a shame and says, no, I, I won't meet you here, but I, I will meet you here where you really need it the most That's where I will meet you. That's where we can find solidarity. That's where we can find connection. And that's the deal, right, of being a follower of Christ. It's not all blessings. It's not all mountaintop experience. It's sharing in the suffering of life, and it's hard, and it hurts, and it somehow is able to give us meaning and solidarity with one another and with God. This is being in fellowship with humiliation, the humiliation of Christ's suffering. We may be no more connected to Christ than when we are sharing in his cross experience. It's what theologians refer to as the cruciform life, a life that is formed, mimicked, shaped by the crucifixion. And this paradox that God in Christ participated in an act of shame and humiliation more than anything else is, in my opinion, turning things upside down on how I think about the nature of God and a God that is vulnerable. A God that is willing to be vulnerable. A God that is willing to be naked before us is unique and intriguing and inspirational. The crucifixion is referred to also as a sacrifice in part because this is the vocabulary available to the Jewish followers of Jesus at the time. And that whole idea of sacrifice is is very strange. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, I know in some translations it says propitiation, but let's say 
It's a sacrifice of atonement. That makes a little more sense. Through the shedding of his blood. Now, this can get pretty in-depth, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds with the point here, all right? But Jesus wasn't a goat. He wasn't a dove. He was a man, right? And as far as we know, which we do know, human sacrifice is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. It wasn't something that God said should happen. In fact, sacrifice in general, the psalmist in Psalm 51 says that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, he would give it. He says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. So so what do we have here? This idea of Jesus now a sacrifice for atonement through the shedding of his blood. Are human sacrifices a thing now? What's, What's going on here? And if this doesn't strike you as strange, then you've been in church too long and you've gotten used to this language because this language is strange. It's unusual. God presents, and that's where we think we can read that scripture over. God presented Christ as a sacrifice, but you see, God presents Or another famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave. You see, the idea of a sacrifice was the person who needed forgiveness gave a sacrifice so that it would be received and his forgiveness, his his guilt would be dealt with. It was the person who had to offer the sacrifice, give the dove, the lamb, the goat, whatever it was, they had to offer the sacrifice. But here we see God is giving that sacrifice. God is offering the sacrifice, so to speak, or a more familiar passage, right? He loved the world that he gave. I I don't think I'm off point, and I'm sure there's more to it, but the idea of God offering a sacrifice on behalf of humans is a bit striking. It's a bit unusual, It's in reversal of what we would think when we're offering a sacrifice to something. And first off, God initiates this, and the offering is done by the brutal empire of Rome, right? It's not done by a worshiper. The book of Hebrews addresses Jesus as both the one who takes away sin, the sacrifice, and also the high priest who offers the sacrifice. And again, I find these things intriguing because what I find here is the absence of ego, the absence of taking control. And I don't know about you, but I I want God to be in control and I want God to be in control to do things the way I think they should be. And, and the idea of God giving up his control, not wanting to make himself known, not having any reputation, willing to take shame. 
strangely magnetic to the need that I have in my soul, the need for my ego to have to face a God who doesn't have one. And then I I wonder about all the times that I and my, quote, Christian faith felt the need to make my voice known, to present my will out there, to make sure my freedoms were met, to make sure I had my rights, to make sure that people understood they can't step on me. You're not going to take advantage of me because I was born a Christian? Oh, gosh, there's so many places I could go here. But this is what I find unique. This is what I find different. This paradox of shame. This reversal of sacrifice. Connected to one who's anointed. There's something there that I believe is an example for us all to live into to wonder in, to wonder about, to learn from, to identify with, and to become like. And if nothing else, I hope that these ideas can start to grow in, in your hearts and imaginations and, and that through these things, maybe a little bit more of the nature of God as seen in Christ can be formed in you and in me and that we would be imitators of him in these things because I think they're the things that make the difference. Let's pray. Father, this is an emotional topic for me, and it's not something I fully grasp, but something that I feel more than I understand, something that I resonate with more than I'm able to figure out. Lord, I I think that's true for most of humanity. I, I believe, Lord, this is what really took root and gave depth to those who believed in you. Those who believed you were alive believed this is who you were. And Lord, I I pray that this would be something we can gravitate to, something that would pull us towards you, that we too would live in this cruciform life, 
be made into your image. And that image is seen on the cross. And Father, for anyone who is listening or watching, who's hearing these things, if they can resonate with the understanding of shame that we have, that we carry, that we feel, if they can resonate with the ego that wants to prove itself better than try and escape these things, may we find a God who is in solidarity with the reality of who we are. That doesn't feed the ego and doesn't despise the shame. And as Paul said, Lord, this is the power that you have. This is where you set us free. This is where you draw us in. And I pray that would happen to all of us in a deeper, more meaningful way as we look to be like you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, even that, the way, truth, and life this is all explained in the cross. When Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, it is seen in how he lived, was explained by Paul in Philippians. And may we too pick up our cross and follow after him. May we be shaped by the king identified with shame for it is the power and the wisdom of God Amen God bless you guys love you, miss you love you guys so much, appreciate you so much thank you for being a part of this in us and hope to talk to you and see you soon Bye You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast we invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.